Welcome, everyone, to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 210. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore. Hey, Nick, how's it going? Hey, John, I'm doing great. We are pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. It only takes a second. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Great, Nick. Hey, uh, I just wanted to reemphasize that our second site, graph.nerd-journey.com, is uh, live. That's the knowledge graph and link to notes version of our main pages show notes that we developed to make it easier to explore our episodes, find different guests, explore topics that are talked about in multiple episodes, and so on and so forth. Let us know what you think about that. Let us know if it's uh, lacking in ways and uh, things that you'd like to see more of. So how have you been, Nick? Uh, I know that I've been a little bit absent just because I've had this hip surgery and uh, I didn't expect to be out, but man, it took a little bit more out of me than I thought. No complaints, you know, just trying to trying to do the things, keep things moving, continuing with the morning routines of editing. And I actually hit the guest recruitment pavement really hard over the holiday break. Got a bunch of outlines out there, so we have a lot of good content in the funnel, including a new series we're starting today. Ooh, that's exciting. You want to uh, give us the kind of thematic overview? Yeah, absolutely. First thing is special thanks to Neil Thompson for connecting us with this guest. This series of interviews um, is going to be with Shelby Vaklu. She has a lot of experience as a developer or a software engineer, and she's in the realm of data science. That's a new persona that we've not had on the show yet. Yeah, very exciting. Yeah. Let me ask you a question, John. If you were told that you could either take a different job or tomorrow was going to be your last day at the company, what would you do? Ooh, yeah. Such a good question. I mean, it really puts the pressure on, doesn't it, to make a decision? Yes. That's something that uh, Shelby had to face, I guess. She absolutely did. Yeah. Looking for a new role within the company on 24 hours notice. That's really rough. I think the things that kind of popped out for me were kind of the the planning for that. You know, it was almost like in retrospect, here's really what you should be doing. And some of the resume advice that she gives early on in the conversation, I thought was something that I hadn't really thought about before. And I think that we should add to our standard list of advice to put in resumes. 100%. And what's it like to go from developer to analyst to business owner? Yeah, a bunch of different hats and, and a bunch of uh, different transitions. You know, it's kind of the thing that we do here, right? There's lessons learned in each one of those transitions and paying attention to those, you know, the things that led up to them, the results leading out of them. There's a lot of things that can be learned. Um, or things that you realize that you learned pre-transition that are brought into sharp relief during the transition. And don't forget that there is a, at the end of that, there's a transition back to individual contributor from business owner. So uh, yet another uh, set of lessons to learn there. And that's just part one. 
And that's just part one. So yeah, instead of uh, chatting about it anymore, let's jump right into episode 210, part one of our conversation with Shelby Vaklu. Shelby Waklu, thank you so much for joining us on Nerd Journey today. Thank you so much for having me. Can you start by telling our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do today, please? Absolutely. So my name is Shelby Waklu. I go by the she, her pronouns, and I am based out of San Francisco. Most recently, I was the senior director and head of data at a sports tech company. And during the two years that I was there, I ran a department of 27 product analysts and machine learning engineers. I actually recently left that job to take a little break and go see my family in India. I hadn't been able to go home for three years, um, unfortunately, due to COVID. But as of right now, I'm currently interviewing with multiple companies for VP of data roles. Oh, yeah. We all need a break now and then. I'm glad you were able to do that and go spend some time with your family. That's important. Oh, it was it was much, much needed, especially after the three years that we've all had. I think it was much needed. It has been a challenging three years for many people. Well, what we like to do on the show, Shalvi, is we like to go back to the beginning of people's career and kind of walk through their journey. If memory serves from the episode you did with Neil Thompson on Teach the Geek, you started as a developer. And I'd be really curious to hear about what the qualities and skills you think are needed to become a successful software developer. Yeah. In my case, I trained as a computer engineer in college. That's what I did my schooling in. And so coding was a base, basic skill that was required for software engineering jobs. My, I think my first job was titled web engineering. And then event, eventually, after I moved to a different location, they changed it to software engineering. But coding was the skill that was sought after for everybody who's who's uh, entering the company. A lot of companies have specific languages that they hope for that people already have a competency in. But more importantly, the ability to break down problems into their component parts is something that you use at every single developer job. I also think that basic estimation of timeline, estimation of cost, that any project you work on, what, what does it actually take to get it done? Those are very useful skills to have as a developer. And communication, just like any job, is a, is a really important part of a, of a software developer or software engineer's job because you have to update people, give them, give them some idea of what you're doing, how you're doing it, and how you actually get things done. Oh, I like that. The communication aspect is really important. Yes. In terms of the problem-solving aspect, how have you seen people demonstrate that on their resumes, in bullet points, or even in interviews? Because I know you've led some large teams and organizations. Any thoughts there? Yeah, I think people who are successfully able to articulate on their resume, not just the experiences that they've had, but what they've learned from it, it's super useful for people to find a way to effectively communicate that. And resumes, especially for people who are fresh out of college, maybe they're looking for their first job, how they can demonstrate it, or at least how I've seen people do it successfully, is if they're able to not just describe the project that they work on, worked on, but also the how they did it. And that's where the ability to show that, you know, you took something which was a little bit ambiguous and you were able to come at it 
from a customer-oriented perspective and get to that solution. So it is possible to do that on a resume. And especially when people don't have a lot of other experience to show, there's plenty of space on the resume to be able to do that. Um, so I, I always look for that on resumes. Um, and it's 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 been some of the distinguishing characters that I look for. So maybe even if someone didn't have knowledge of the specific language the company wanted, but they could demonstrate problem solving with another language or some kind of programming framework, I guess you're saying that counts as the experience you'd be looking for? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I would almost uh, hesitate to look for a company that discounted your experience in other languages, because ultimately the basic skill of being able to code Yes, there's some syntax, which is very specific to a certain language, but the concepts remain the same. So it, it does help if you're applying for very senior roles that you have experience with that specific language for a very long time. But for entry-level roles, it's absolutely not required. It should be, the only requirement should be that you have the ability to translate your experience or your familiarity with a different language into that same, into that same framework. So most good companies tend to look for buckets of languages where they'll group somewhat similar languages together and they'll say that, okay, any of these four or five, you know, which are, they tend to work in a similar way. If you have experience with even one of them, that's good enough. We do not expect you to know every single thing about what we need on this job. Oh, I like that. The range of languages. Maybe I just haven't seen this in a job description from a different company before, but I've also never applied for a software development job either. So. That is equivalent to me of a company giving a range of possible compensation for something. Here's the range we're looking for. We want to see if you match and fit that. I, I think that probably gives you a lot more candidates that could be a really good fit for the role. It does. Um, I think it's a smart move for companies to list multiple languages, uh, especially the ones that are closely related to what they're looking for. Because sometimes, uh, say when I was a PHP developer, I would maybe search for that keyword and maybe the company is using something similar like Perl or Python, like, you know, something which is kind of in the ballpark, but I wouldn't have landed mm -hmm. on those jobs unless they've listed something, which was what I was actually searching for. Yeah, that's a great point, especially with applicant tracking systems and wanting to get the right yep. keywords on the resume to get through those and hopefully have a conversation with someone about your experience. I can totally understand. What about that young person maybe middle school, high school, who might be considering a software development type career, what advice would you have for them? Because I think you actually mentor or have mentored some middle school students in the past, right? Yes, I am big on mentoring. I have taught middle schoolers. I used to volunteer at a school nearby where I would teach math on the, I think it used to be every Thursdays or something like that. I've also taught coding every now and then, but that's that's not just been for middle schoolers. It's also been to people, fresh, uh, fresh grads from high school. Um, and I think in all of those cases, I'm always very curious about the questions that youngsters ask me about what my job is like. And uh, it's interesting, a lot of people ask how much money I make or <laughs> how much money I can make because for for young people, that's a huge motivator. They want to know which jobs can pay them well, which jobs can um, get them the lifestyle that they want. And, you know, in that, it's not just about money, but it's about the lifestyle, 
maybe somebody wants to be able to travel frequently or want to wants to be close to their family and so they would prefer a remote job or maybe somebody is just a lifelong learner and they want to keep finding roles that allow them to keep learning rather than doing the same thing year after year and i would say for all of these things like at least these specific examples that i gave software engineering is a great option it can check the boxes on a lot of pieces that people care about there's creative aspects to it there's learning aspects to it so who knows what everybody individually cares about but there's something in it for everyone i think what was your favorite part of being a software engineer i love to code for me coding is like solving puzzles and i i grew up on detective stories that was something that i found very fascinating so just uh, being given a problem and then given the creativity that okay get to a solution that solves the problem you don't have to do it in this exact one way it was something that i found very exciting so for me the coding lifestyle was fun and that's why i still make an effort to code occasionally i don't get a get to do a whole lot of it on my current job but um, it is it is something that i i just enjoy on a personal level i love the fact that you're you're still coding because you love it and for professional development reasons i think a lot of people feel that as they move up the chain or move into different areas that they truly have to give up a part of what they did or who they used to be or who they want to be because they've gone in this specific direction so you can still have a little bit of your cake and eat it too it sounds like yeah absolutely i think uh, everybody can even if they're not coding on their jo- on their day job they can find a way to code in their in their free time and i know free time is a concept that doesn't exist for most people but um i do like to keep at least a little bit of that skill current as much as i can are you able to share what languages you might be focusing on in your own studies right now definitely you know i feel like i'm in the data data sphere and python keeps getting more interesting there's more things that you can do with it i had a reckoning a few years back when i was trying to figure out whether i want to double down on python or r i chose python and i think a lot of other people in the industry did too so i try to stay a little bit updated when new things come out and there's newer things that people are trying to do with it but uh, you know i again i'm not i'm not new to python it's not something like it's something that i've i learned many years ago but there's always newer applications with it of some sort okay yes thank you for sharing that One thing I just thought of when someone's looking to go down that development or engineer path is the experience of taking college courses or getting a degree versus going through some boot camps. How are those looked at by people doing the hiring? I mean, is can someone who wants to get into it get into some boot camps and maybe get their foot in the door easily or is that a little bit harder? Yeah, it's a interesting question because I think companies have each each company has their own perspective on it, how they treat uh, that experience. I can definitely say that as far as I'm concerned, like what I have done as a hiring manager is to look at the totality of the experience that somebody is able to bring. So, I have a lot of respect for people who maybe later way after college ended, maybe they had a completely different job for many years and uh, at some point they decided to pivot and upskill themselves with coding or something that they were not necessarily taught in college 
and i i i look at that experience positively because you know i may not be in a position to put them in a super senior position just based on their experience before they acquired those coding skills but i do count that up that it's not like i mentioned earlier it's not just coding that you need to know how to do how to do a job so coding maybe is something that you can be taught at a boot camp but hopefully you know through your other jobs through your other life experiences you've picked up the other skills that are also adding to your journey as a software engineer as a software developer your ability to explain what you're doing your ability to understand problems and care about the solutions those are not something that typically a boot camp will teach you but those are things that other life experiences and other jobs will teach you i like that i've seen a lot of things online about apprenticeships in this area and a couple other fields that people can take advantage of I didn't know that there were apprenticeships in those areas until in the last six months. A family member was looking into getting in those fields and, and found a bunch of those. Have you seen anybody take the apprenticeship path? I haven't. I have heard about it. Um, I have heard about, I think, specific companies tend to do it where they offer those specific paths. I haven't personally met a lot of people who've done that, but as a concept, I think it does sound very interesting. I probably should have asked this earlier, but... Is there a difference between a software developer and a software engineer, or is that like a whole different podcast? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great question. I, do, I don't know if I'm qualified to answer that because I always just sort of use the terms interchangeably. I think uh, when I worked at my first job, I know I worked with people, some were titled software developer and some were titled software engineer, and none of us even knew what the difference was. I think there used to be some difference in maybe educational skill sets that was expected at some point. But if there is a very specific, clear difference between them, I've not seen it. Okay, good to know. I appreciate that. If memory serves, I think that at one time your title was full stack developer at monster.com. Can you tell us what was meant by full stack developer or what it means to you? Yeah, so um, full stack developer was how we internally defined it. I think my external facing title was still software engineer at that time. But internally in the company, they distinguished us from other software engineers in the company. And so some of us were considered full stack, some of us were not considered full stack. And the primary difference was that as full stack developers, the expectation was that we work on everything. So the front end, the back end, the back end has to include databases as well. Uh, you were expected to be able to code, program the browser, um, which was typically using languages like HTML, CSS, as well as the server, which uh, I think in my case, it was PHP and Perl. And I also picked up database manipulation skills like SQL, I think it was MySQL or something at that time. I'm probably dating myself with all the languages that I'm listing, but... I love SQL. I mean, why shouldn't you love SQL? It's the best language. Yeah, it's great. I mean, who doesn't get satisfaction from select star from even if that's all you know how to do, you know? That was uh, literally the, I think, the first line of code I ever wrote in my life. I don't think it was in SQL. I think it was in some other language, but my mom was teaching me how to code and I think I wrote select star something something. <laughs> Well, there's just that elegance from being able to type something into a command line or a blank window, and then it pulls back the data that you wanted to get. Yeah. It's hard to describe if you haven't done it out there. Absolutely. I, I agree. It is, it, is, it is a fun concept. What about that person that's more of 
a technical generalist who may have the skills in those different parts of the full stack and subscripting language knowledge, but they're not a developer. Any advice for them to slide over into software development? I always recommend that people start with looking what's out there in terms of jobs that people actually want and then almost go on linkedin or whichever whichever place you can you can find a few jobs uh, nowadays i love that most jobs also have a have a salary range listed on it so find a couple of jobs that maybe based on location salary or you know some other parameters make sense for you and then almost look at like what is common between those jobs um, you know which 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 are the ones that you actually want and then almost reverse engineer like what would it take for you to get a job like that there i would say like you know the caution there is that technologies change pretty quickly so what could be a hot new skill today could be totally obsolete <laughs> if you take 5 years to learn it and that's why i think the whole concept of going to boot camps rather than a second degree is in some ways so powerful because you can get a faster turnaround time into getting industry relevant job skills you know learning specific languages that are in high demand i think sometimes like with newer technologies there's just not a whole lot of people who have experience with it so people are more willing to take a chance with someone who's just spent enough time learning it has done some projects in it and uh, they're they're going to position themselves in a much better way and are hiring managers also looking for things like code snippets that they can look at that these people have created up on GitHub? That's if it was me, okay, I would I would put my code snippet link in my resume so somebody could go and look at it. But I was just curious from a hiring manager's perspective, is that valuable? You don't really care, or you just really want to know how they solve problems in the languages they know? Yeah, so I have not hired for software engineers in a really long time. I think even when I have been in hiring panels for software engineers, I'm looking at other aspects like how do they collaborate with data or how do they show up in other ways. So my knowledge in that piece is not the most up to date, but I can definitely share that even when we do hiring for for data folks for analysts, they are also expected to code and snippets can be really helpful like if somebody has a portfolio and they put it up front and center on their resume and link to it that is super helpful but nobody will hire someone without actually getting them to do some form of coding so maybe it's a live coding exercise maybe it's pair programming maybe you're given an assignment that you complete in your own time i think different companies have a mix and match approach to how they actually test for coding skills but that is still an expectation i think in most in most technical jobs that you are able to code a specific thing that you are asked to code right that practical aspect not just knowing the theory okay yep good to know you mentioned data so let's let's talk about your transition into data at some point when you worked for monster it was suggested that you take a different type of role from development. Can you tell us a little bit about that, how that came to be? I've told this story multiple times, but I think I'll reframe the story. Um, it's still the same story, but reframed in the light of the current climate, because one aspect of it was that I was encouraged to move to the analytics side after working as a software engineer in the same company for five years. The other aspect of it was that I was with the same company for five years. I moved three continents during that time. And in my you know at the end of that 5 years they had 
by that time decided to lay off the rest of my team in in the US so i was still working for a team in the US and i was basically the last person remaining on that team they had the layoffs and they actually gave me an option they said well this team is done you know this team has ceased to exist your coworkers no longer work here unfortunately and they said you work in india so you can either take the severance um and then this is going to be like tomorrow is going to be your last day or you can take this other job which is an analyst job so you know that's the part of the story that i haven't mentioned that it also kind of came as part of a a trade off with with just a layoff situation because i i know there's a lot of people right now who are unfortunately going through that so in my case it was an interesting option because the severance they offered was super generous for that time but i had this other job that they offered and i had no clue what being an analyst meant um i didn't even know what what an analyst did but uh, they said well you'll still get to code at least 50% of the time i said okay let's let's try that out so that that was my story of how i got into analytics it was chance luck timing and a bad economy and a forced decision it sounds like that day <laughs> right cuz they said if you want the severance you tomorrow's your last day essentially yeah so they gave me they gave me uh, a day uh, well a night to think about it and i think uh, the only reason they gave me a night to think about it was also because i was based in india so it was just like the timing and everything they're like okay we have to give her a day um otherwise i don't know if i was in the us if i would have had the same same options i felt lucky that i actually had an option and uh, i i did consider taking the severance cuz like i mentioned it was generous but i i'm so glad i took the option to learn something new try out something different and it worked out very very well for me yeah i'd say it did based on looking at your profile <laughs> and and hearing some other interviews you've done were your teammates were those roles that you and your teammates were filling were those being given to contractors or just completely eliminated the roles were completely eliminated oh wow okay yeah i mean it was not a surprise like the team had been slowly shrinking over the last couple of years so it was not it was not like a complete shock like i knew it was coming for a very long time but uh, that company was also actually a really nice company to work for so i i was grateful to have worked there for all that time and i think if i understood you correctly it's not like they were creating this data analyst role all new because of this change they already had job descriptions and shared a little bit about what it would entail is that accurate or was or was it kind of seat of their pants we're going to put people in this other position it was a net new role but also when i was working as a software engineer i was still working for a us based team that did not have operations in india at all i was the only person on the team who was working out of the india office cuz i told them hey i'm moving back home and i'd love to keep my job i also took a pay cut to go to india like by indian standards i was still getting a decent uh, decent paycheck but it was cheaper for them to have someone who's based out of india and still willing to work in that team so there was already an existing team in india that was doing something else that was working on a completely different part of the business which was still functioning as normal um and that team knew that they could use an analyst for better op- optimization so it was an opportunistic move from the indian team because they're like okay here's someone who already knows the business who's been with the company for 5 years and has all the required skills but here's a way for us to keep them employed and still working for us cuz 
by that time, I'd made a few relationships in the Indian office. I'd been working out of there for a year or so. They they knew of my reputation a little bit, so they were willing to make a new role. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, that internal reputation so important inside the company. Make sure you meet people in other areas and meet your colleagues. Yeah, and it was uh, very interesting because the internal reputation wasn't even because I was um, showcasing great work. I used to usually go to my local colleagues in India when I would run into problems and I'd say, hey, I cannot figure out how to do this. And all my colleagues in the US are sleeping right now because it's the middle of the night for them. So can you help me? But that also meant that they knew what I worked on. They knew the type of problems I solved. And so even if I was actually asking for help, it was still showcasing what I what I was capable of doing because one thing I was capable of doing was ask for help when I got stuck with a problem. Yeah, that's a good point. I like that perspective of when you ask someone for help, it demonstrates to them what you're working on and the problem you're trying to solve. I guess maybe I just haven't heard it framed like that, but I really like the way you, you put that. What would you say were some of those early skills gap you skills gaps you had to fill when you slid over into the analyst role. I remember you saying that it, it was supposed to be 50% coding. I'd be curious to know if that held to be true or not as well. Oh, yeah, it absolutely did. Um, and I'm glad because like I mentioned, I love coding. I would even argue that maybe it was a little bit more than 50%. I can't pin a number on it. But I think some of the early skills that I either did not have or had atrophied from my many years of education was uh, just basic math mathematics skills. So statistics, for example, as an analyst, it is very highly prized skill. As an engineer, like as a software engineer, I barely ever used used things like that. Things like knowing how and when to run an experiment and how to evaluate the success of an experiment. That was something that I did a lot of on my in my new analyst role. Even presenting findings in a compelling manner. I think that was one of the, it's considered a soft skill. I don't think of it as a soft skill at all, because if you can't convince people of doing the right thing and taking the right option with your findings that you know to be true based on analysis that you've done, I mean, that's a hard skill. <laughs> that's a that's a crucial skill for you to gather. And I just never had to do that. Like as a software engineer, you don't you don't have to convince somebody about trusting your findings. You're asked to solve a problem and you either solve it or you don't solve it. So it was a very different uh, thing and also things like basic dashboarding. Those are not skills that I had and I had to pick, pick them up. Now, were there people inside the company who mentored you and helped you to gain those or did you have to seek out external help? So I was, again, lucky that I had some people, again, they were not in the same location as me. As I mentioned, with the same company, I had worked in three different continents. So when I was in Europe, I knew that there were people who had that job that I got in India. Um, so I reached out to them and I was able to ask them about specific things that they could help me with. Um, I also had my own network of just friends and people I knew through college. So there were a few people who at least pointed me to the right uh, right resources that helped me get those skills. My manager at the time was also quite helpful. He was able to provide just general guidance about what I could learn or focus on. Okay. Yep. Have to use your resources appropriately wherever they are. <laughs> yes. So overall, 
did you like the data analyst role once you were in it for a little while? I did, actually. I loved it. I am so happy that I moved. It was now when I look back at my career, I don't know if I would have stumbled into it another way. I'd like to believe that data would have found me no matter what. <laughs> but uh, I I don't know. Um, I'm just grateful that I stumbled into it because I've never looked back like, you know, I, I loved my software engineering days. But now that I'm in data, I'm not I'm not going back. And when you mentioned experiments earlier, I want everybody to make sure they understand we're not talking about experiments in a lab with beakers and <laughs> and drops of solution mixing together. We're talking about experiments with data, right? Yes, yes. At the time, my the experiments I used to run were on the, like, Monster was a job search portal. So making the alerting algorithm more relevant to more people and running small iterations of it to see which one which one actually is better for people, which one gets them more jobs, better jobs, more relevant jobs, things like that. I don't think everybody understands the kind of back-end analytics that go into different platforms like this. I'm sure that I have a ton of blind spots in that area, and I'm sure we'll get to it as well. At some point after that, you started your own business, right? I did. I did. I called it Abundance Group. And what made you want to do that, strike it out on your own? Because that's a little bit of an experiment in and of itself. It was. And actually, uh, it was, I think it was, again, part of it was just timing, location, things that I was seeing. I, one, felt very comfortable. I had been with Monster for six years before I decided to go out and strike it out on my own. You know, worst case, if it didn't work out, I knew I had, <laughs> I knew I had a job that I liked and that liked me. So part of it was that like financially I was set up where I was like, okay, I can try something out. And if in a year I don't get enough traction, that's okay. I have, I have other options. I have skills that are relevant. And I just thought like I was at that time, my husband and I actually started the company together and both of us were in a stage where we, we, we could, so we did. Oh, that's very cool. How did you feel about that dynamic of working with your spouse? Was that were you able to keep a good balance of work and personal time since you were both working for the same place? Yeah, my husband and I have been together for a very long time. Uh, we met back in college, so you know we were we were used to sort of we're used to navigating things that we are doing together, but still maintaining some sort of boundaries and discipline. And I think both of us are pretty structured. Uh, so even back then, some of the things that we did early on, which really helped was one, we had set times that we did work and we, we really tried to maintain that discipline. Like we treated our own company. I mean, your own company is never a nine to five, but we, we did try to sort of have that, okay, this is work time and this is not work time. And so, you know, we, we kept our cadence of vacations and family events and hanging out with friends and things like that. But then when it was time for us to work on our startup, like it was a different thing. And the second thing that I think we did, which was really helpful was have clear areas of ownership, like who owned what. So I owned pieces and, you know, both of us worked on them, but I was the decision maker on some things and he owned other pieces. And again, he was the final decision maker on those pieces. So I think, I think that made for a successful partnership because we had we didn't need a third person to come and break the tie because we already had a mechanism of breaking any any disagreements before we even started. I like the boundary setting. That's good. And the sharing of responsibilities. Less pressure on any one person to 
make all the calls. Yeah, yeah, less pressure. And uh, sometimes it uh, resulted in very interesting situations. Like my husband was in charge of uh, getting us more of the clients. So sometimes he'd sell things that we didn't know how to build. And I was responsible for the technology. <laughs> so I'm like, oh boy, what did you go and sell again? <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> it looked like you also had employees under you at this startup, right? Yes. And that was your first experience managing a team? Yes, it was. I had done tech lead positions before. So I was not, you know, I had, I had experience with leadership, but not with like managing somebody and things like that. Oh, that's a great point. Can you paint just sort of a rough difference between what a tech lead responsibilities might be compared to, okay, I'm leading this team now or the manager of this team? Yeah, um, great question. So I had actually once drawn out a whole spreadsheet that explained the overlaps and the differences. But yeah, I think summarizing it, tech lead are primarily responsible for the technical delivery of something. So they can kind of own decisions around the architecture, how something will be delivered, various technical decisions that arise with it. And they most likely, unless they also have someone else who's responsible for sort of managing the project, they're also very often managing the actual delivery, like communicating timelines, coordinating with uh, stakeholders, making sure the requirements are correct and things like that. A manager's primary job is to manage the people that report up to them. And by managing, I mean, they are responsible for their career growth. They are responsible for their satisfaction at on their work. They are responsible for giving useful feedback to their reports about things they need to grow into, things they need to develop. So managers can sometimes also be technical leads where they are managing the technical project and they're managing all the people who work on that project or these two pieces can be separated out. Like a lot of companies tend to have managers who are also technical leads. A few companies don't. Some companies have it where someone is purely managing the people and they're just responsible for their health, happiness, and growth. That's a great distinction. I've heard people carrying both responsibilities referred to as sort of player coaches. That's how other guests have described it. But it sounds like that may not be accurate because they're not necessarily pressing the buttons and doing the work, they're just ensuring the delivery happens as it's supposed to. Is that accurate? Well, so player coach is a different concept. Uh, I mean, it's, it's again on similar lines, but that just means that the person who is managing or leading is also doing some of the work themselves. And that again is a distinction that some people, they might be accountable for the delivery, but not actually executing on it, but they're coordinating the people who are executing on it. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of different terms, I'm sure, that uh, resonate with different people. But for me, at least, that's the that's the distinction. Okay. And which one of those was most applicable to you during this time? Which one of those three would you say? Yeah, so I was, I was player and coach because I was executing myself. Like when the, when the company began, I was writing all the code myself. Eventually, I knew that we had to hire people in order to actually meet our growing business and more delivery, like shrinking the delivery time and things like that. And so at that point, I also was the tech lead for some of the projects, some of them I let uh, some of the people who worked for us just kind of lead it themselves. And uh, I was managing everybody who reported up to me. So it was 
you know, it was a different type of business. So I think my management skills at that time were very, very new and very, very in the very, very nascent stage. But uh, I did care about who who worked there. And um, we got most of like, it was originally one developer that we hired. And then they liked it enough that they brought two other developers who were also willing to work with us. So, you know, those are the kind of things that you want. You want to retain employees, you want them to refer other employees, and you want them to care about the outcomes of the business. And did you have ambitions of going into leadership at some point after you had had the tech lead experience earlier in your career? Yeah, I think I always wanted to head towards leadership experiences. But starting my own company, that was not the primary motivator. I think it was just about trying something different, um, stepping outside my comfort zone of this very structured company that like tells you, here's the project, here's what you do, and here's what you need to deliver. Like I wanted to try something that was ambiguous, that was that had the potential to grow, that had the potential for me to learn on a lot of different pieces. So my motivation, like, again, the outcome was still the same. Like I did, I did get to explore a lot more on the leadership side. But I would say the primary motivation for starting my own company was very different. It was about the learning and trial and, and, and something else. Okay. What would you tell someone who wanted to strike it out on their own and start a business that it really takes to keep it going? <laughs> well, one, the finances have to work out. <laughs> that's a, that's a very critical, a very critical piece. But I would say that you have to have conviction in your skills, and you have to have the discipline. That the more decisions you take before you're actually faced with those decisions, and as much as possible, you either stick with those things you decided to do, or have a good rationale for why you're doing something different. I think it makes it easier. Um, so, a specific example is that. Let's say you're starting out a business right now and your hope is that you get, you know, you need to get five paying customers uh, within a year for it to actually make sense. Now, in the ideal world, you're spreading it out over a year, maybe once every two, three months, you'll get one new paying customer. That's typically not how it happens. <laughs> how it happens is that you reach up to month 11 and then maybe once you've convinced one, they'll get a couple more. And, you know, but it's, it's, it's again, like you have to play out the different scenarios that can happen and you have to decide what you will do in each of those situations. So before I even started Abundance Group, which was the company that I, I, I co-ran, I had actually started my own company, failed startup, not listed on my LinkedIn, worked on it for two months and kind of just gave up um, because I didn't get didn't, didn't really get any traction you know that was my first learning that I didn't I didn't have a fully formed plan I hadn't accounted for the fact that it can take a lot longer to to get something so I think for any anybody who's considering being a founder starting their own thing like have a plan and have a fail a fail scenario of of what happens if you're not able to reach milestones that you want by various timelines and what you do in those cases yeah you need a run book for success and failure <laughs> yep and i think i saw the term product owner in that description on linkedin is that the same as a product manager just while we're talking about the business they can be similar but i mean there's there's one key difference product manager is I mean, they they are they own the they own the strategy and the vision of a product, whereas a product owner is more tactical. They are typically executing on someone else's strategy and vision. In my case, for example, when I was running my own company, 
the strategy and vision came from our clients. So they would not go into the detail of defining the product or the execution or the planning. They just say like, pie in the sky, here's what we want and here's what we wanted to do. I might give them feedback about how they might need to think about their strategy and vision, but that was not something like I was not supposed to override it because it is ultimately a client who who has that. So product, most companies have product managers because I think people who are executing on a product are most successful if they have a clear strategy and vision behind it. Thank you very much for that. So you start this business, you run it for a little while after the first failed attempt. What makes you decide to, okay, I'm ready to go back and work for someone else? You know, again, part of it is always, it always comes back to timing and location and logistics. So while I was running uh, my own company in the, roughly in the middle of it, my husband and I decided to move back to the U.S. We'd been living in India for a few years and we decided we wanted to go back to the to the U.S. So we moved to San Francisco. Some of our clients were actually based out of Menlo Park. So, you know, there were some clients in Menlo Park, there were some clients in Middle East and some were still in India. After I came here, I realized that the business would not scale in the same way. Like I would have to hire, the finances for me worked when I was earning in dollars and spending in rupees. And now I was living in one of the most expensive cities in the country. And uh, my, you know, I needed to earn a lot more for it to it to sort of make sense. And uh, so it was a conscious decision that I didn't necessarily want to scale up that business to, you know, like a big, giant operation, like that was that was not what I wanted. Instead, I saw an opportunity of being in Silicon Valley, which I think is one of the most exciting places for someone in my in my line of work. I thought this is a good time to, um, pardon the phrase, but learn on someone else's dime. Um, I wanted to learn from others who've, who are building things, who are doing cool things. And uh, obviously, I have a lot of value to add, but I'm, I also have a lot of value to gain from other ways that people are doing things. Since we're talking about getting out of business ownership, when you owned the business, did you take your experience as an analyst and apply that to what you did and in any ways dig deeper into the analyst portion or the data itself that led you to continue down the data path, I guess is what I'm after. One thing I will say is that I have been pretty data driven, like, no, I'm not talking big data, I'm talking small data. <laughs> but like, uh, you know, it's a small data for any decisions that I take. A spreadsheet told me to move to SF. And that's why I moved to SF. <laughs> and, uh, you know, similarly, like I I did my sort of own analysis of uh, by the by the time I was in SF, I had worked as an engineer for five years, I'd run my own company for two, three years, I had worked as an analyst for a year. And so I did have multiple options. Uh, oh, and yeah, there was product ownership in between. So I could have potentially gone down a product manager path as well. So I had a few different options in terms of what I could go for. And I think my plan at that time was like, I picked the thing that was most appealing to me, which was analytics. Um, even though I had only a year of hard experience in it. Like obviously I'd used parts of it when I was running my own company, but that was the one I really wanted to go after. And I think my plan was that, okay, I'll give it a couple of months. And if I can't find something reasonable or something that's exciting, I'll reevaluate and see if I need to go after a different function. 
but I fortunately didn't have that problem. So it was, it just worked out. How was the business ownership experience looked upon when you're going and applying for a role as an individual contributor again? How did people look at that? Did they say, hey, Shelby, why why would you want to come back and be an individual contributor? <laughs> yeah, it was it was a question that I did get asked. I think most people looked at it very positively. I think it was something that was appealing to people that you had at least tried something on your own. And, you know, I had I had at least something to show for my time that I, I did have multiple apps that I had made that were out there um, that I could point to and say like, hey, I made this for this for this startup or I worked on project XYZ. I think there were companies who really questioned um, how I would fit into sort of not being the boss. I, I, I think that's very valid. <laughs> Actually, the role that I landed, I I think after my own company, I worked at Prezi. It was actually framed as a leadership role. They said, we'll hire you um, as an IC, but, you know, in a couple of months, you're going to be given your own team. That didn't actually happen. Um, that plan changed very rapidly right after I was hired for various reasons that had nothing to do with me. But uh, that was the framing that they were happy to find someone who had some experience with leadership. It was framed as an opportunity, which still kept some pieces of things that I was used to. Oh, okay. Did you get into any technical lead type things or just individual contributor, maybe just mentoring other people on the team? No, I did. I did get into a leadership role later. So there was the initial one, which didn't work out. It didn't happen. But then a couple of months later, another role opened up, which was, again, more of a tech lead uh, role for all the analysts in the San Francisco office that that company was split across two different offices. So that is the role that I ended up getting. So I was in a lead role. tell you i really like shelby's love for coding even now she still tries to spend some time on it because she loves it so much and to me that is so similar to the advice in the manager's path by camille fournier to continue to try and keep some of those technical chops with you and in this case it's because you're passionate about it and you love it i had not thought about this john before she shared it but experience within a certain range of programming languages being relatable experience even if you haven't worked in a specific language that a company needs i guess that just goes to show you i'm not a developer but it certainly if you don't have experience in the language a company wants for the job posting you very well may have enough relatable experience to get yourself into that role and get to learn a new language yeah yeah it's very true we're not experts at this by any means. But it, it makes intuitive sense that if you have a level of expertise about a specific aspect of a business process, and it happens to be implemented in a language that your next job or this job that you're applying for isn't using, the goal is to get that level of, of business expertise, then that might be more important than the 
expertise in the language. And I think the specific example that Shelby gave was um, a choice between Python and R. If what you're using R for is data science and intensive access of numbers and statistics, maybe the transition to Python is not as big a deal as someone who is an expert in Python, but what they've been using it for is web front ends, not for data science. So if you already have the data science expertise, it might be easier to spin up on Python than it is to spin up on data science. I hope that makes sense. It does. But when you said data science, it didn't really make sense. So we're going to have Shelby explain that in part two. <laughs> yeah, I also thought, you know, just to respond to your, your point of a love for coding, you know, there's that transition from business owner back to individual contributor. So if Shelby had just completely let go of any level of expertise, it would have been a lot rougher to, to make that transition. And the fact that she kept her hand in at the beginning of, of running the business, you know, writing all the code and then, you know, coming out of it, you know, having handed a lot of that off just makes you don't know what your next step is going to be. And you don't necessarily want to limit yourself. Really, really cool points there. And the whole tech lead, player coach, manager, I, I really enjoyed the delineation and discussion on that. Yeah, really good points. Just to rewind a little bit, early on in the discussion, she had a point about resume. And I really liked, personally, the point that she made about being able to articulate the lessons that you've learned in a resume, not just the experiences that you've had. And I think that was the thing that I took away as, ooh, maybe we should add that to our standard advice. You can boil that down and have like a list of things that you, lessons that you learned. Now I know A, now I know B. Here's some of the things that I do a little bit differently now as a result of this experience like that. That can be pretty powerful. Maybe that's something that might be better articulated in a cover letter, which would, uh, be interesting because I've never relied much on cover letters, but <laughs> as you're starting to fill in some of those things, it, it makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Or maybe you put it on LinkedIn in, in the space you have describing what you did for that job. You could do it there too. I would say that on a more macro scale, this is just another focus on communication as a skill. Shelby talked about it and its importance for the developer she saw some gaps in the way she needed to communicate as an analyst and justify what the data said, convince someone, so persuasive communication. And then even asking people questions as a skill. But the outcome of that was showing these people in other departments proof and transparency of the things you're working on and your ability to solve problems. That that was fantastic stuff. Yeah, that's all really cool. And I think even... You know, use them out to the macro. Let me zoom back into the micro. If you are not necessarily putting that on the resume or in a cover letter, it's still important to articulate that somewhere. So you have that as a talking point during an interview, because maybe they don't ask that question, but you think that it's important for them to know. So it's something that you can work into a, a, a conversation, um, or maybe they do ask you about it and you have it locked and loaded as a, as a chunk of discussion. I also like, you know, getting back to the discussion about the business as an, as a business owner, the articulation and thought about scale 
that's something that entrepreneurs have to think about. How do I scale up this business? And you know what she said about earning dollars and paying rupees was fascinating. You know, that made it a little bit easier to scale. And then as soon as she was out of the geography and that just didn't seem as realistic anymore, then it was really time to sunset the business or it was a factor in that happening. Very, very interesting. Like all of, every time we talk to a business owner, that discussion about exit strategy comes up, right? What is the long-term goal? Like, you know, is this just going to go on forever or are we eventually going to sell the business or are we going to pass it on to somebody else, you know, sell it to an employee? Like all of those things is kind of like at a certain point you need to start thinking about it. And I don't have any expertise of doing that. It's just interesting to, to hear somebody else's experience going through that. Yeah. I mean, the only thing we've really signed up for is getting to episode 1000 at least, right? So we told Chris Wall. <laughs> right. Well, the first thing we signed up for was episode 20. <laughs> right. And episode 100. <laughs> I also thought, you know, just to stay on this theme, I was fascinated to hear somebody else's perspective about moving into Silicon Valley and how that was a factor at sunsetting the business. The idea that being around a concentration of people who are working on interesting things and there's a lot more people to learn lessons from would affect one's ability or desire to continue running a side hustle. I never thought about it that way, but it does make a lot of sense. If you, if you sense that there's an ability to grow by spending the time that one would spend on the business, absorbing knowledge from these other people, then maybe that makes sense. Especially, you know, if if the, the job that you have in Silicon Valley, you know, pays, offsets the loss of income from the business. I did notice that she also got the dangle there. This is a term that I remember hearing about on uh, manager tools or maybe career tools that I don't remember which podcast where they say like, it, you know, beware of being hired for a position where they say, well, we want to hire you for this position, but really what we're thinking about is this other better position that we'll give you, you know, not too long after you've joined us. And that's what they called the dangle, which is, you know, unless you have that in writing at month four, you will be, you know, your new job will be X instead of what we're hiring you for. Like that doesn't mean anything. It isn't even necessarily what happened here, but it just fit that pattern of don't necessarily take a job just because you think that it's going to lead, or even if they tell you it's going to lead to an even better job, a plus plus version of the job that you're being hired for. The entire discussion about should be about being hired for this job. Yeah, don't let that be the thing that sells you on it, the promise of maybe. Right. Super exciting episode. And I'm going to be honest, I was really disappointed that we... We cut it off right there. I wanted to hear a little bit more <laughs> about the, the transition you know, back to an individual contributor role and, and then the next step. But I guess that is for next week in part two. Yes, it is. Just a reminder, you'll have to wait. We want people to subscribe and, of course, give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter at Nerd Journey. All right. Farewell, listeners, and tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White, at VJourneyman, for Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore, 
signing off. Adios.